Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Steve Camerata. Steve is the Director of Research at the Center for Immigration Studies. For our summer 2021 issue, Steve wrote a fascinating essay titled Immigration and the Aging Society. In his piece, Steve details why research and data do not support the conventional wisdom that higher levels of immigration would make America a younger and more productive society. Immigrants do not increase the working age share of the U.S. population by all that much. They're arriving in America at increasingly older ages, and they have declining fertility rates that are converging with those of the native-born. If we want to take seriously the challenges of an aging society, we cannot rely on immigrants to save us. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, Steve. So your piece focuses on kind of combating this claim that is repeated by a lot of people that you describe as an article of faith for many American policymakers, that immigration is the solution to the aging of American society. Before we kind of get into your argument and some of the research that you cite for that, could you tell us a little bit about what is the issue that immigration is supposed to solve? What, is this, what do you mean when you say that American society is aging? And why is it such a problem that American society is aging? Right. Well, there's just no question that we're having fewer kids and we're living longer. And basically, in demographics, those two things will make your society age. It's really almost universal throughout the world, more pronounced in the advanced industrial democracies, whether they be in Europe or in Asia. But it's true everywhere. People are living longer and having fewer children, even in traditional Muslim societies or less developed countries. But again, it's most pronounced in industrialized democracies. The concern is essentially twofold, that there isn't going to be enough workers to sort of run the economy and support the government. A larger and larger fraction of the population is not of working age. It used to be maybe 8% of the population is of working age. Now it's more like 16, I mean, I should say 8% of the population we're of retirement age, if we assume 65 is retirement, it's twice that now. But 30, 40 years ago, it was half. And that will continue to go up. And the United States is not by any means the most rapidly aging society, but it certainly does have population, though somewhat less than most of the European countries have it. But it's the same challenge. How do you pay for government? How do you run the economy if a smaller share of the population? are of working age and thus would be workers. So the proponents of immigration who say that immigration can help us solve that demographic crisis, that, that's one of the key arguments they make is they focus on the, the working age share of the US population. And in your piece, you cite the Census Bureau's latest population projections, which suggests that if net immigration stays at what it is currently, which is a little over a million people per year to the United States, the US population would reach 404 million people by 2060, which is 75 million more people than if we had zero net immigration per year. And yet you note that this would only increase the working age share of the population by about two percentage points. I don't know exactly how to ask this question, but how could that possibly be the case? What, what is it about immigration currently that means it won't have a bigger impact than that? That's a great question. The short answer is immigrants are people. For one thing, they don't all arrive right in the prime working age. Increasingly, in fact, immigrants are coming to America at older ages. So, for example, back in 2000, we can look at just the new arrivals. 
the people who essentially just got off the boat, if you will. And their average age is about 26. Today, or if we look at the 2019 data, which is some of the most recent, and it's good before the pandemic, the average age at arrival for an immigrant was 31 years. So a substantial increase. We now have a situation, this was not true in the past, where one out of every nine immigrants arrives aged 55 or older, which means they could move right into a retirement community if they chose. So immigrants are not simply all young workers. They come at all ages and increasingly at older ages. I could explain why, but the short answer is because we've allowed so many immigrants in legally, many have chosen to become American citizens, which we would like. I think everyone agrees that that's a, that's a good thing, but it also allows them to sponsor their parents. And basically, the number of people coming in the parents category, that is U.S. citizens, typically naturalized U.S. citizens, sponsoring their parents, that category is more than doubled in the last few decades. And as a consequence, we're just getting a lot more old immigrants. And the other reason why the immigrants are older is just basic demographics. As I said at the outset, the whole world is getting older. So older populations in the primary sending regions, whether it be Mexico or China or India or South Korea, means we're likely to get older folks coming. And we do. It doesn't mean that all immigrants are old or anything. It just means that immigrants are not all arriving in their working years and in their 20s and 30s or something. They, they come throughout the age distribution. The second big reason why immigration doesn't have an enormous impact on the working age share is a problem we all have. They have to celebrate their birthday once a year. And so they age over time, just like everybody else. And not all immigrants are recent arrivals. The average immigrant has actually lived in the United States for two decades now. In 2019, immigrants were 46 years old on average. The average age for the native-born person is 38. Now, let me make it clear. Part of the reason for that is whenever an immigrant has a child in the United States, it only adds to the native-born population. So that number's a little bit, it's not the whole story because the immigrants cannot be added to by the normal process of children being born because in America, anyone born in the United States is native-born, is U.S.-born, is an automatically American citizen. So that's part of it. But the fact that the average immigrant is about eight years older than the average native-born person now is a good reminder of that simple fact that immigrants age over time. In other words, the immigrants we're letting in now will be of retirement age, most of them by 2060. And that's why immigration doesn't have quite the effect that people imagine on the working age share. And there's something else that's really important. That is immigrant fertility. How many kids do immigrants have? Well, we can study that question. And it turns out the answer is not that many. Immigrants, if we had looked at this more than a decade ago, there was a much larger gap in the fertility rate or the total fertility rate, the typical measure used by demographers. It refers to how many children a woman can be expected to have in her lifetime based on current patterns. It's a mm -hmm. pretty basic measure. And I'll just give you the numbers real quick. By 2019, the average immigrant only had very slightly over two children on average, or could be expected to. For the native-born, it is lower at 1.7, but the differences aren't that great. They used to be much larger, but that's kind of gone away. And the expectation is that that will continue to go away. And it simply reflects the fact that in the United States, having a large family doesn't make as much sense. 
given the cost of living, desire to save for college. We don't mostly live on farms. All the reasons that people in industrial societies have fewer children applies to the immigrants when they come here. And so their fertility has fallen a lot. Even the new arrivals aren't having that many kids. But what it means is immigration doesn't raise the total fertility rate very much in the United States. And you could measure that different ways. Bottom line, the presence of immigrants pulls up the fertility rate in the United States by about 4%. So it is a positive effect, but it's small. And again, the reason is it's not very different than native-born people. So they can't pull up the average very much because there's not much difference. And so they're the main reasons. There's some other reasons why immigration doesn't quite have the effect people imagine, but they're the biggest, that immigrants arrive at all ages, their fertility is declining, and of course, they age over time. And there is one other reason, I guess I could say, to the point out. To the extent that immigrants do have somewhat higher fertility rates than the native-born, their children add to the dependent population, that is, those too young or too old to work. Now, to be sure, those children that the immigrants have once here will eventually grow up and become working workers, hopefully. At least they'll be working age. But often, by the time that happens, their parents have reached retirement age, and the two trends tend to cancel each other out over time. Bottom line, immigration does not fundamentally shift the working age share of the population. And the reason, again, is immigrants are people. They're not just the idealized workers or baby makers that some people seem to imagine. They're people. And that's the reason. So it does shift the demographics a little bit, though. You know, we've heard proposals from certain people, I think, prominently among them, Matt Iglesias, formerly of Vox, I guess, currently of Substack. But he, he's proposed trying to aim for a billion American citizens by, I, I think it was 2060, and through immigration. And in such a scenario, it seems like it would have some impact. But I think in your estimation, that's not really sociologically, culturally, and even perhaps economically feasible. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Well, I guess in some sense, it's uh, up to your listeners, right? Do you want to be a country that's roughly 700 million larger in less than 40 years? If you have concerns about pollution, congestion, traffic, sprawl, a whole host of quality of life issues, it would seem that adding 700 million people, which again is almost, not quite, but it's roughly tripling the population of the United States in a relatively short time. I mean, I don't think he's serious about that. It is certainly true that we even run those projections. You don't even have to get up to a billion. If you want to preserve the share of the population today that is of working age, what you would need to do is just basically have about five and a half million net immigrants a year. The concept of net immigration is a little bit funny. It's a bit of an abstraction but it's what population projections have in them. It's the idea, the difference between the number of people coming and the number of people going. Traditionally, actually, America did not have that many people going. That number may have increased somewhat in recent years, and maybe we need to do some adjustments. But the bottom line is, that's what that number represents. The Census Bureau, when it does its projections right now out to 2060, it assumed net immigration of 1.1 million a year. That's the net effect of immigration on the United States, and they assume that out to 2060. If you make it five times higher, about 5.5 million a year, then you get a total population of something like 750 million, but you can maintain the working age share. But I think it's fair to say that that kind of proposal is radical in the extreme. There's 
virtually no public support for that. But beyond that, it's not clear how society would accommodate that. How would our institutions adjust? How would the immigrants assimilate? Just give you one example. One of the ways assimilation, which I don't think is a bad word, but some people may may think of that way. One of the ways assimilation works is that there are so many more native-born people and their children in society that the immigrants and their children are a much smaller percentage. And so they adopt the culture of the native-born population. But if you were to fundamentally have that level of immigration, that would become completely inverted. If you even if you didn't go out to a billion people, you just went to 750, it would be the case that five-fold increase in immigration, that by 2060, a majority, a significant majority of the US population would be post-2020 immigrants or their children. Again, that's without any precedent in American history. The highest percentage we ever had was in 1910 and basically 1890 of around 15% of the population of the country was farm born. We're getting close to 14% now. So we're getting in record territory as a share of the population. But those kinds of, again, I will call them radical proposals, they would be double and triple that. Again, yep. something we've never, never had anything like that in American history. And I think I don't see them as serious proposals. The range at which we might change immigration is maybe we decrease it a few hundred thousand a year. Maybe we'll decrease it a few hundred thousand if you want to do that. But the idea that we would increase it five or eightfold or something like that doesn't seem, it's not really a serious proposal worth considering. And because of that fact, because we are a country with a language, history, and culture, and we have democratic institutions, the range at which we might change immigration policy, either reducing or increasing, is what we should be talking about. And in those kinds of ranges, immigration just doesn't make that big a difference. One other point, even if you did what these advocates want, you can't leave it there because then in 2060, you then have to decide what to do about your new aging population. But now the level of immigration has to be even more substantial to affect a population of 750 or a billion. So then you'd have to be taking in 10 or 20 million people a year to try to preserve that working age share. Again, it, it means you can do the projections. It's just not reasonable or practical. So a bit of a snowball effect there. Okay. Steve, I wanted to pick on something up earlier you were talking about with immigrants arriving at older ages, but also kind of the type of immigration system that we have. You know, obviously right now we have a family-based immigration system where I believe, and I think you write about this in the essay, that people who become naturalized citizens can have their parents, you know, come to the U.S. who are obviously going to be older individuals, probably not in their working age, maybe some, but probably not in their working age. So is it the case that given the type of immigration system that we have, it's just very difficult to increase the number of workers through immigration? Right. Or increase that ratio. You do get a lot more workers. You just get a lot more non-workers, too. That's right. So just as a practical matter, it's if you if you have a lot, a lot of immigration and let people become citizens, and the United States is by far the most generous country, lots of places take in immigrants, but those people often have no prospect of becoming citizens. Where the more than one million green cards we give out a year, that's permanent residency. You can stay as long as you like. Those green cards allow within three or five years you to become a citizen, and then it allows you to sponsor relatives over sees more extensively. And one category, as you point out, is the parents. You know, if you're going to have a generous legal immigration system where people become citizens, then there is going to be enormous demand to bring in parents. And that's just one example. So in that situation, 
it's hard to make it, it's it's one of the challenges of trying to use immigration to change the ratio of workers to retirees or the working age share. You're getting a lot of old people because the existing population of immigrants wants to bring in parents, which is understandable, but you have to take that back into account. Sure. I mean, and so if you you know, if we shifted to an immigration system that was more merit-based, where we had immigrants who were higher skilled, higher levels of income, that kind of thing, that could make a difference. But I think you say that there's not a lot of political will for shifting to that kind of system. Right. So also keep this in mind. If you decide that, hey, I want to, we want to have an education-based system, we're going to eliminate the parents' category. If you are an American citizen, you can also sponsor your your siblings and their spouse, plus any children they may have. There are limits on that, but that's still a substantial source. Let's say we eliminate that too. We just say only the spouses and minor children of U.S. citizens. And we still have asylum seekers and refugees. They have all different education levels, but often they tend to be unskilled as well. But putting that aside, we just said, look, we're just going to focus on that one core family group. You could do that. And then the rest of your immigration, you say, well, we'll take in a lot of highly skilled people. Then, you know, you might have a better, and we could talk about this fiscal effect or a better economic effect, but probably not that very much a better demographic effect because the most educated, and this is true among immigrants, native born, and in every country in the world, have the least children. So, for example, highly educated Asian immigrants, very productive, you might say, well, gosh, maybe we should try a system that replicates that for other reasons or something. They tend to have very few children. And so if you move to a more education-based system, you'd probably have immigrants, almost certainly would, immigrants with much lower fertility, and it might not have the demographic effect you were hoping for. There is some other interesting research on fertility that's worth mentioning and worth thinking about. It's by no means definitive. But there is evidence, both when you look at the Mariel boat lift to Miami, Florida, when an enormous number relative to the size of Miami area came into the country. If you look at what happened to the fertility of native-born people for a while, it fell quite a bit. It's kind of considered a natural experiment. When my colleague and I, Darren Ziegler, looked across America at the largest 50 cities, even when we control for the demographic characteristics of that city, like the age of the population or its race and its educational attainment, so forth, we also find that areas with more immigration have fewer children. The reason we think this is the case, and I think this is probably true, is immigration tends to drive up housing costs. Now, that could be good for homeowners, but it may not be so good for people thinking about starting a family or expanding their family. And one of the real possibilities, it's probably true, certainly in some areas, that the more immigrants you take in, the lower native fertility gets. And if that's true, which is possible, we don't can't, I, I would not say we know that for sure, but it's plausible. It seems that the evidence points in that direction to some extent. Then the effect of immigration on population is even less, population aging, I should say. That is, the immigrants are going to come in and cause natives to have even fewer children. And if that happens, then the society ages even more rapidly. And any small positive effect immigration has on population might be erased entirely. That's actually really interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting possibility, and we continue to research in that area. So talking about just the impact of, of immigration beyond simply demographics, or at least directly on, on aging and demographics, one of the interesting parts of the piece is, is, is you discuss, well, I hesitate to use the word, but 
the burden of, of immigration on entitlement programs. And I mean, and you note in the piece, to be fair, right? So working age immigrants are, are actually slightly more likely than native born Americans to hold a job. But nevertheless, because they're less educated on average, they have lower incomes, they therefore pay lower average income tax, and they have a higher use of means-tested programs than natives do. And so I was, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the consequent, like what that actually looks like for the American system and what increased immigration could do to those already sort of strained programs. Right. So the idea is you can, but you know, it is, it's not entirely assumption driven, but you do have to make some assumptions. You can look at all the taxes immigrants pay and then all the services they receive. There's always a question, what do you do with pure public goods? That's the idea of things that are non-rival in their consumption, as economists like to say. That would be like national defense. And you can make some, some adjustments there and say, well, we're not going to assign any, any cost for those kinds of things. But still, when you try to look at all the taxes right now that the immigrants are paying and all the services that they're using, it looks pretty clearly to be negative. The National Academy of Sciences did a series of eight different scenarios of making different assumptions about things like pure public goods. And the bottom line is when they looked at immigrant families, they were in all eight scenarios in fiscal deficit. That is, they don't pay enough in taxes to cover their consumption of public services. So right off the bat, if you're hoping to bring in young immigrants with the idea as well, they're going to help us fund Social Security and Medicare, because at least the young immigrants who make up a large share of all new newcomers they'll help us pay for those things. That's a reasonable kind of assumption. And it's kind of true. Newly arrived immigrants are younger. I told you they're only 31 years old on average. That may be a good deal older than they used to be, but still they're younger and they are not a net drain on social security and Medicare, two of the largest federal programs. That's the good news. The problem is other than those two programs, if you look at the rest of the budget, they are in fiscal deficit. Their kids need a lot of education. Unfortunately, immigrant families tend to access welfare programs at high rates. They tend to use programs like the earned income tax credit or the additional tile tax credit, both of which are not really credits. They're, they're cash payments to low-wage workers. And so when you add all that up, you get a pretty big fiscal drain at the present time. And again, as you rightly point out, it's not because the immigrants are lazy. It's not because they all came to get welfare. That is not the reason it happens. It mainly reflects lower income, reflecting lower levels of education. That's the problem. You can't use immigration to sort of fund those other programs because overall the immigrants right now, as best we can tell, are in fiscal deficit. And of course, when they reach retirement, like everybody, almost everybody, and obviously when Bill Gates reaches retirement, he won't be in fiscal deficit. But most of us regular schmoes are in fiscal deficit. We're using Medicare and Social Security. And so we're not generally paying as much in taxes. So we're in fiscal deficit. But the immigrants appear to be, at least for some large share of their youth, in fiscal deficit. And then when they get older. Now, these are complicated questions because there's a huge issue here of what do you do with the cost associated with their children, which are substantial, right? We're spending tens of billions of dollars educating the children of immigrants, as we should. Those kids are going to be here. They represent part of the future of America. But when you're doing a fiscal cost study, you have to decide how to allocate them. And the, one of the criticisms people might say is, well, okay, you're counting those costs now, but you're not taking into account when those kids get older. Of course, one response is, yeah, but we're doing that for the native born. They have tens of millions of children too. 
Bottom line is the National Academy did try to project out, taking into account generation after generation and going all the way out 75 years. The key thing they sort of assume is that the, the future wave or the current immigrants out 75 years would do as well as past generations. Kind of a big assumption, but you know, be that as it may. And what they find is it looked like it was a net deficit for the adult arriving immigrants in about four of the eight scenarios, and it was a surplus in four of the scenarios. So the future over many decades, which is very speculative, no one really knows what spending and taxes are going to be 10 or 20 years from now, let alone 75 years. But the National Academy basically found that at present, immigrants appear to be a deficit. And if you project it out, it's unknown. It's possible they will be. If they do as well as the past immigrants, then that's good news. And assuming we know, and they have to, again, with those projections, make all kinds of assumptions about what the tax rate will be in the future and government spending will be in the future. And all of that was done back in 2016. So it's all wrong now, given the new fiscal reality we face. But put that aside and just say it's unknown whether the immigrants will converge enough with natives in their use of public services and tax payments to be a long-term fiscal benefit. It's just unclear. But right now, where we can measure it a little more precisely, it looks pretty clear that they're a drain. But if you were to change the immigration system, as you suggested before, to more educated immigrants, you might be able to change that calculus. Because one of the things the National Academy shows, which is just common sense, the highly educated immigrants are almost always a fiscal benefit right from the moment they arrive and through their life cycle until you know, maybe they reach retirement. Whereas the least educated immigrants are a fiscal drain pretty much from the moment they arrive and through their whole life as well. Just exactly what you would expect, that more educated people make more money, pay more taxes, use less in public services, and the reverse is true of the least educated. So a, a different immigration system could help change that. But as we've discussed, that's not so easy to imagine politically. Right. Okay, interesting, Steve. So I wanted to actually go back to kind of the start of your essay, kind of where we started. You opened up by noting that the idea that immigration is the solution to the aging of American society has become an article of faith among those arguing for for higher levels of immigration. But as you've been discussing here at length, the data does not support that conclusion. So, you know, that kind of makes us wonder, why is there such a disconnect here? Why have like America's top commentators and politicians been kind of ignoring this data on the impact of immigration for so long? Why do you think that is? Well, I think that There are certain things that are certainly true, right? If you read any of these articles, they start out with some stuff that's absolutely right. America is aging. America is having fewer children. And immigrants add to the size of the population significantly. And as a result of changes in immigration law in the 60s, and then illegal immigration as well, the share of the U.S. population that are immigrants or the child of immigrants has increased a lot. And it's also the reason why the share of the population that is Hispanic and Asian has increased so much, and the share that's white has fallen so much as a result of immigration policy. And they often cite that, that most of the growth or most of the new entrants or a large share of the new entrants into the workforce are going to be uh, non-white. They're going to be either immigrants or the children of immigrants. All those things are true. So the population's aging, and to the extent that there's any growth in the workforce, a lot of the, the, that is coming from recent immigrants and their children. So those things can be cited and they're true. And then they make the leap that therefore immigration must be able to fix the problem. 
they forget about all these other things that the immigrants age, that many of them don't are that old, they don't have that big of families, that they're people. And I think that's why that mistake happens. So you start with some things that are clearly true, but then they go off course. Now, just to be clear, so your listeners understand, as we've already mentioned, there's just no question immigration can stop the population from shrinking. It can accelerate population growth. It just tends to accelerate all the age groups, not completely, but forward, so that you don't get a change so much in the age structure, but you do get a big change in the overall population. Pew Research estimated in 2016 or 17, I can't remember which year, that post-1965 immigration had added over 70 million people to the U.S. population. In other words, we were 70 million larger back then because of immigration. Today, it would probably be about 80, 85 million larger. So post-1965, which is roughly my lifetime, would have added about 80, 85 million people to the U.S. population through immigration policy. It's why the demographics of the United States has changed so much. And so it can stop population decline. It just doesn't stop population aging. So the focus of the piece is on sort of debunking this claim, that, that, that central claim that immigration is going to solve the aging of American society and the problems that are associated with it. But you also, towards the end, sort of explore some better solutions. Now, that isn't the focus of the piece, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what some better strategies American policymakers can be thinking about in terms of combating the problems associated with an aging society. Right. Obviously, you could always rejigger the generosity of entitlements and things like raise taxes if you're worried about government. But from a demographic point of view, the two main things you can do there are straightforward is if you're concerned there aren't enough people of working age, you can change that. The working age is not set in stone, right? Today, you can get your 401k at 59 and a half. You can get early social security at 62. Full social security is comes at 66 and going to 67. Medicare eligibility is 65. So we have different sort of retirement ages or ages at which you can access things that are designed to help you in older ages. And so there's no reason you can't raise, say, retirement. If you just raise the retirement age, if you think of the working age as 16 to 64 and then say, well, no, let me think of it as 16 to 70, then you basically can preserve the working age population all the way through to about 2060. Declines a little, but not much. In other words, if, if, if the working age population is assumed to be raised by basically four or five years, you can offset all the population aging as defined as the share who are working age. It's certainly true that people 65 to 70 are working a lot more than they used to. Back in 2000, only a quarter worked. By 2019, a third worked. You could certainly raise that in that same way. So it's also true that when Social Security, which is one of the main programs people think about when they look at these questions, when it was created in the 1930s, if you raise the, the life expectancy, is of course, much less. If you raise the retirement age or Social Security eligibility, let's, let's call it that way. If you raise that to 70, you would basically still allow people, given life expectancy, to collect longer now than back in the 30s when the program was created and it was set at 65 because we live longer. So you could sort of rejigger that program to reflect the new demographic reality and move us out of a kind of 1930s perspective. And if we did that, that would sort of address this concern of not enough people of working age. 
it matters a lot more than you might think. I can explain the mathematics, but in each individual age, think of it this way. When you're in your 60s, there are about three, roughly 3.5, very roughly, very, very roughly, 3.5 million people at each age. So if you just raise the retirement one year, you take 3.5 million potential retirees and turn them into 3.5 million potential workers. So very, very roughly, you shifted about 7 million. And if you did it for two years, you get 14 million chips and so forth. And that's why just a few years change has this big effect on the share of the population that is of working age. And I think a reasonable case, given life expectancy, can be made for it to address an aging society is to just have more working age people work. However you wish to define the working age, it is the case that the share of people, whether you look at 16 to 64, or you focus in on just prime age, working age men of 25 to 55, no matter how you look at it, whether you look at teenagers or anything else, the fraction who are working at any one time has declined dramatically. So for example, we can go back to 1962, I think is the oldest data that I've seen, but I bet you could go farther. You know, of men, you used to have a situation where prime age men, 25 to 50, but 97% of them were either working or at least looking for a job. Right. By 2019, those prime age men, 25 to 54, only about 84%. And among teenagers, the collapse has been more pronounced. Women increased their share who are working, but since 2000, that's also defined for working age women. So right now, based on the latest data from May, I looked at it, you know, you're still looking at around 60 million working age people not working. And they're mostly just out of the labor force, which means they're not even looking for a job. So if you're concerned, gosh, there's not enough workers, again, to pay for government or to run the economy, then one solution is just to increase the share of people who are working age who are working. If you were to look at all of men and all of women together before COVID hit, about 71% were working. If you could get that up to 75%, you would offset, almost, you would have a bigger effect on the actual share of population that's better workers than would say all the immigration in the last few decades. Because again, you're transferring someone from non-working to working. So now you might say, well, could we go from 71 to 75%? That isn't that big. And you know, in, 19, in 2000, as recently, it was higher before, but as recently as 2000, if you look at the full working age population, men and women, 74% were working. So it feels like we should be able to at least get it back to that. And if we did, it would have an enormous impact on everything from public coffers to the economy. It would mean a lot more people uh, uh, working. So they're the two main suggestions. Raise the retirement age and get more of the working age working. There are those who would argue that actually one of the ways to do that to increase labor participation rates would be to curb immigration. Are you sympathetic to that view? Or does that seem like- Yeah, there, there are two arguments, and I'll tell you my the two arguments is one is, well, the immigrants come in and compete, they may lower wages, and they may crowd out native-born people. And so they adversely affect. It's certainly true that looking at men, because economists generally look at men when you want to look at something long-term in terms of labor force, because men still, even today, don't jump generally, though they do more than they used to, take time off from work when they have children. But- so the decline in work among prime age men, for example, is something that everyone points to and is very 
very troubling. And of course, the biggest declines are ones among men who don't have children. So it's not that they're staying home with kids. But I think that, yes, there probably is a wage effect, particularly among the less educated, where the decline in work is most pronounced. College people with a college degree, they work almost as much as they used to. It's all the people without a college degree, especially those with only a high school education or, or less than high school, who work so much less than they used to. And that does tend to be part of the economy where immigrants often work. Now, there is a debate, and we could have 100 podcasts on that literature. But I think it's pretty clear that, but it is by no means a consensus position, that immigration is reducing wages and employment among that population. And it's also pretty clear that the less educated have all a host of other impediments to their working that has nothing to do with immigration. But this leads to the second concern with immigration. Putting aside the direct competition effect, the second problem with immigration is it lets us ignore all those social problems. If we agree that less educated men are not working, and these are men, and that they have developed all kinds of problems, whether they be opioid addiction, extreme obesity, and just non-work, they, they live in their parents' basement, they sleep on their girlfriend's couch. We all agree, yeah, that, that can't be good, right? And again, it's very much more pronounced among the less educated. What immigration lets us do is just ignore it, to say, well, yeah, but we'll bring in an extra million immigrants now and we'll just employ them. And the social problems for these individuals and society we could just kind of look the other way because we don't need them. And if we didn't have the immigrants, we probably create incentives for employers to think, well, gosh, how do we draw these people back into the labor force? How do we help ex-cons get jobs? How do we do that? And with the immigrant with immigration, you just don't have to. Now that doesn't, it's not a thing to do with the immigrants per se. It's not like you're blaming them, that would be ridiculous. But it means that if you give employers an alternative to the more difficult to employ, less educated Americans who have significant social problems, they're going to take it. And there are consequences to that policy decision of tolerating illegal immigration and having a very permissive legal immigration system that adds lots of workers to the of modest skills to the bottom end of the labor market, where an enormous, enormous number of Americans who have that same skill set are struggling. And I think that they're the two concerns, and I think they're both real. And in my view, trying to move away from a system that allows in so many less educated immigrants legally and tolerates illegal immigration so readily would be helpful to the less educated who are not doing well in American society. Would it solve all their problems? Absolutely not. Would it be helpful to them? I think it would. Yeah, Steve, I think that's an excellent point about you know, focusing so much on immigration causes us to kind of ignore some of the other people in our society that aren't doing so well. So we appreciate you making that point and uh, joining us for this conversation. It's really fascinating. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. If you'd like to read Steve's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.